My name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Happy New Year's, everyone. I hope your holiday season was very merry. Apologies for the long gap in the episodes. I was just a bit burnt out at the end of last year and in desperate need of a break. But I'm back now and looking forward to getting into as many episodes as possible this year. On this 75th episode, it is worth dwelling for a moment on the podcast as a whole. I'd like to say once again how grateful I am for everyone who has listened. Connor and I are so happy that our work has taken off and that you are all enjoying it. So thank you again. 75 episodes is a rather large number. When we started this project, we had no idea what we were doing and no real plan. I just wanted to talk about the Merovingians and Connor was kind enough to help me out. In hindsight, we really rushed through those early years, but eventually I think we found a good rhythm, and I'm still enjoying producing this podcast, even as we near the two-year mark. In terms of years covered, we're a bit over the halfway point of the Merovingian dynasty, but I will be very surprised if we reach 150 episodes. There is simply less material now that we've shifted from Gregory to Fredegar, and I expect us to hit 100, but finish up fairly soon after that. But all that is far in the future, and will probably take us a while as the pace of episode releases will slow as my work and PhD takes up more of my time. Still, I'm going to try my best to get at least one episode out of Fortnite. That's the goal for this year. Anyway, enough talking about myself and the podcast. Let's return once more to the life of my favourite Merovingian, Brunhild. We've already seen what was probably the lowest point of her life. Husband murdered, son kidnapped, imprisoned by her mortal enemies Chilperic and Fredegund. But she rebounded from that low, with cunning and guile, to once again become one of the major players in Merovingian politics. This time, she'll fall almost as far, at least if you believe Fredegar, but she'll rebound just as high. Higher, arguably. Though her already dicey reputation will never be the same after episode 75, A Woman Walking Alone. Now, a quick recap. Childebert II is dead, only a few years after succeeding Guntram and becoming the senior king ruling both Austrasia and Burgundy. The union of the kingdoms was ended, as his eldest son became Theudebert II, King of Austrasia, while his younger became Theuderic II, King of Burgundy. However, as both boys were still underage, Brunhild became regent of both realms, providing a continuation of joint rule in a way. But things would not be all smooth sailing for Brunhild. First, I must note that these are the sparse years of Fredegar's Chronicle, which we talked about in a previous episode. But the text still gives us some interesting details, which we can talk about. For a start, there is chapter 17, which notes that Fredegund and Clothar II seized the opportunity upon Schildebert's death and took Paris and some other cities. The author uses a curious phrase here to describe the seizure of these cities, Rito Barbaro. This can be translated as barbarian rites or in the barbarian fashion. It is unclear exactly what is meant by this. It could be a simple description, 
They seized cities by force, like barbarians do. This probably implies all of the normal looting and everything that came along with it. But the other option is the use of the phrase in a pejorative sense, meaning the author intended to shame them by noting that they behaved like barbarians. This could imply a level of devastation above the norm in this invasion, or it could reveal something about the author's prejudices. The second would offer a fascinating insight into inter-ethnic relations in this middle period of Merovingian rule. Unfortunately, we will never know, but it is an interesting example of how the unclear authorship of Fredegar leaves his chronicle open to a wide range of possible interpretations. Something we can say for sure is that the timing of this invasion wasn't a coincidence. Since Guntram's death, Fredegund and her underage son had likely been living in fear of Childebert and Brunhild's revenge. Huddled in their diminished corner of Neustria, they must have received the news of Childebert's untimely death with great rejoicing. While Brunhild and Childebert hadn't moved against them, the possible reasons for which we have discussed before, now the shoe was on the other foot. Brunhild was now the one with not one, but two underage kings, and now two separate courts to try and manage. Thus, Fredegund and her son seem to have wasted little time in invading and seizing parts of northern Gaul that they clearly felt were rightfully theirs. This implies two very interesting things. First, Brunhild's position was not solid. According to the Chronicle, men were sent to oppose the invasion by the two new kings, though probably actually by Brunhild, but they were defeated by Clothar and his men who, quote, made great carnage among their forces, end quote. Here it is important to remember that Fredegar's chronicle has a bit of a Neustrian pro-Clothar bias. Clothar was around 12 years old at this point, so the depiction of Clothar hurling himself into battle and doing carnage seems unlikely. It is also worth noting the avoidance of Brunhild, who was regent and undoubtedly sent the opposing army herself. But defeating her was less honourable than defeating his fellow kings, so she is omitted. Also, the combined forces of Austrasia and Burgundy should have been overwhelming against Clothar. They would prove to be only a few years later. This might suggest that Brunhild was not able to rally enough men, and her control of the kingdoms was initially weak. The second key point to note is the extent of the invasion. Despite the success on the battlefield, and possibly weakness amongst their enemies, Fredegund and Clothar did not continue their campaign into either Austrasia or Burgundy. This is also probably not a coincidence. Brunhild may have been struggling to assert her dominance over the nobles of the two kingdoms, but if an invading army came, it would quickly have united the squabbling parties in opposition to the Neustrians. Fredegund and Clothar seem aware of the political situation and how it was changing, seeming to only take what the Austrasian and Burgundian nobles would not object to, that is, most of what was Neustria. Perhaps, like Brunhild before Childebert's death, 
Fredegund felt that time was on her side and she could take the moment to consolidate her position and then move more aggressively in the future. But she was wrong, as we find out that she died only a year later. The Chronicle skips rather unceremoniously over her death, perhaps because, as an effective opposite to Brunhild, she is a bit of an embarrassment for the Neustrians. Perhaps the author wants to pretend that their branch of the family was never so weak or immoral as to let a woman dominate their court, in which case I'd invite him to read Gregory a little more closely. But I'm not going to skip over her death. She is an important and fascinating figure and deserves at least a little retrospective. When I say Fredegund was Brunhild's opposite, I'm not only talking about politics. In many ways, they had parallel careers, but they differed in important aspects. Where Brunhild was a foreign princess, Fredegund was a local with a murky background. Where Brunhild was honoured and took a comfortable place next to her king, Fredegund had to fight and manipulate and murder to maintain her position. In some ways, Fredegund seems to have done Brunhild's work on hard mode. She didn't have the same reputation at the start or prestige. If anything, she may have been seen as suspicious and scheming from the beginning, unlike Brunhild. On the flip side, this seems to have led her to act more aggressively and consolidate her personal power and position, meaning she survived the death of Chilperic better than Brunhild survived Sigebert's death. While their rivalry dominated the Middle Merovingian period, it was not always an equal contest. In fact, I think one of the major reasons their feud is so fascinating is exactly because it was so often unequal. One of them seems to have always had the upper hand, and this switched multiple times. There were so many periods where one was pushing their advantage and the other hanging on for dear life. There is also the long, fascinating Cold War that occurred, while Guntram's presence prevented open conflict. The length of this feud between the two women is exceptional, and it shaped Merovingian politics for decades. Now, if you think that Fredegund's death would put an end to this feud, you'd be very, very wrong. This hatred, originally between Brunhild and Fredegund, had melded into the wider rivalry between the families of Sigebert and Chilperic. It wouldn't end until one of the families were victorious over the other, something that would take many more years yet. Practically, Fredegund's death seems to have halted whatever momentum the Neustrians had. This is perhaps not surprising. There was no figure as important in the kingdom as Fredegund, and Clothar was still a bit too young to operate with full independence. This gives Brunhild and her grandsons room to consolidate and establish themselves, allowing, spoiler alert, another generation of dominance by the queen mother Brunhild. So, enough about Fredegund, sorry Fredegund, let's get back to Brunhild. You might think, well, she's got some time to consolidate her position, it's time for her domination, no? Well, not quite. Because this is the Merovingian period, and nothing is ever simple or easy. 
Here we must return to the discussion of the changing nature of Merovingian politics. Remember, the long, slow rise in power and influence of the Frankish aristocracy was now in full swing, and their main opponent was now Brunhild. This was not only because of her policies, her centralisation of power in the hands of the court, and thus herself, or her apparent favouring of Gallo-Romans for important positions. No, practically, she was simply trying to hold on to power in two separate kingdoms. The aristocrats in those kingdoms knew that they would have an easier time influencing the new young kings if their powerful grandmother simply wasn't around. So the aristocrats of Austrasia went to work. They were the obvious choice. Their kingdom held all of the old Frankish lands. This meant there was a much higher proportion of ethnic Franks living in Austrasia than in either of the other two kingdoms. This probably meant that Brunhild's policies were even less popular there than in Burgundy, and that the aristocrats there were probably more entrenched in their local power. While Austrasia was the kingdom she had ruled the longest, and the seat of power for Sigebert's family, she had faced significant aristocratic opposition to her rule there before. It was Austrasian nobles that had kidnapped the infant Childebert II and left her in Chilperic's clutches. Also, if you remember back, there were significant nobles like Ursio and Berthafried that directly and openly opposed her rise to power after her return from exile. The Austrasian nobility seemed to have had both an independent streak and ambition to dominate their own politics. This new generation did not seem to openly oppose her in the same way, though. We hear of no rebellions or poorly planned conspiracies like before. No, they seem to have learnt their lesson this time around. Brunhild was powerful, but there still was someone who was more powerful. She had maintained her position previously with the support of Childebert. Now, while she ruled as regent, they turned to Theudebert. They seemed to have whispered in the young king's ear, slowly poisoning him against his grandmother. He was nearly of age. Why did he have to listen to her? He was the king. Why did she rule? He could handle himself, right? Let her go interfere in his brother's kingdom in Burgundy. He could handle himself just fine without her. This strategy paid dividends rather quickly, with Brunhild being exiled by Theudebert with the support of his nobles in 599. He was only about 14 at the time, but enough opposition to the Queen Mother seems to have coalesced, and she was booted from the court she had dominated for over a decade. Let's cut back to Fredegar to see what he has to say. Quote, in this year, Brunhild was hunted out of Austrasia. A poor man found her wandering alone near Arcus in Champagne, and took her, at her request, to Suderic, who made his grandmother welcome and treated her with ceremony. Brunhild had made the poor man Bishop of Auxerre in return for the service that he had done her. 
end quote. Now, this passage provides an evocative image, a queen brought low, wandering around aimlessly until she is found by a humble man who guides her to safety. Very poetic, hence the title of the episode. But, unfortunately, it is probably nonsense. While Brunhild was definitely exiled, it almost definitely did not happen this way. First, the obvious. She was a powerful woman and the grandmother of the king. There is very little chance that she would have been sent packing with nothing but the clothes on her back. That would be a disrespect to the royal family. Second, and possibly most interesting, is the identity of the poor man in Fredegard's story. The clue that he was made Bishop of Auxerre tells us that this was none other than St. Desiderius. This thoroughly undermines Fredegar's narrative because, according to local tradition, Desiderius was of royal blood. Even if this wasn't true, bishops in this period were nearly always well-educated and with wealthy connections. They were not poor men that simply wandered around. As we can see, this passage in Fredegar is designed for maximum anti-Brunhild sentiment. First, she is humiliated by being left to wander alone in the countryside. Second, she is saved by a poor man. Third, Theoderic takes pity on her, further underlining her desperate position. Fourth, she disrespects the church by making this poor man who did her a favour, Bishop. Isn't she just the worst? Likely, none of these things were true. But it is Fredegar's chronicle, whoever he or they were. The one thing that is true is that Brunhild was welcome at the court of Theoderic. She was technically regent of his Burgundian court as well, but Theoderic was only two years younger than his brother. Theoretically, he could have been developing the same independent streak and not wanted his overbearing grandmother around to get in his way. But here, the opposite seems to have been true. Theoderic then, and in the years to follow, saw the value in Brunhild's experience and quickly began to rely on her. This is where we get to the controversy, the turn in Brunhild's reputation. Until now, she's been ruthless, she's been ambitious, perhaps a little murderous, but she's done everything to protect her family and maybe get a bit of revenge on the side. But now, revenge is going to take centre stage. Back in power, now in Burgundy, Brunhild seems to have held a deep grudge against the Austrasians who humiliated her, including her own grandson Theudebert. While we can never be 100% sure, as her power and influence grew in Burgundy, she seems to have slowly pushed Theuderic into conflict with his brother again and again. And eventually, if the sources are to be believed, she would have her revenge by having her own grandson killed. That's all for this episode. I'll be back soon with another episode full of war and strife, so a fun time for all of you who enjoy that sort of thing. Also, Fredegund's son is going to be taken down a peg, so fun for the Fredegund haters as well. See you then. <laughs>